Since the fall of 2022, the women of Iran have confronted the authority of their government after one young woman died in the state's custody. Today's guest views the advocacy of those brave women through the broader struggle for democracy around the world. He's Ali Kadivar this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also at Salve. This week we're joined by Muhammad Ali Kadivar, a professor of sociology and international studies at Boston College. He's also the author of a new book, Popular Politics and the Path to a Durable Democracy. Ali, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so we're going to talk about the book in a little bit, but we want to start off uh, talking about your native uh, Iran, uh, where the fall has seen popular uh, protests, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen in a number of years in Iran. Can you tell us how did these particular protests start? So I think the story is known at this point. It was about the death, or more precisely, the killing of Mahsa Gina Amini. She was a 22 years old uh, woman from the uh, city of Saqqiz, which is in Kurdistan, part of Iran in the west. And she was picked up by morality police uh, for not uh, observing the mandatory hijab properly. They took her to, um, to custody to give her education and then um, she was uh, transferred to a hospital. She went to coma and died. This created public outreach because these issues have been going on for years. The state has been trying to enforce mandatory hijab uh, in women in particular and in general just uh, subjugating women's bodies. Um, so this is how the protests started. They started in her funeral. Uh, women took off their scarves and burned them. They cut their hair and they uh, chanted the slogan, Women, Life, Freedom, which is a slogan that uh, was initiated by Kurdish women in Turkey first, uh, but then traveled to Iran, protest uh, spread to other Kurdish cities, and then uh, women activists in Tehran organized a protest, then protests erupted in uh, other big cities, spread it to the whole country. So uh, women issues has been a major issue in this wave of protests. Women have been leading these waves of protests. Uh, but in addition to that, people are also calling for an end of the Islamic Republic. Uh, main issue is the, they consider the regime tyrannical, that, that they're not representing the uh, population, and it's, uh, the, the regime is also highly corrupt. Do, you mentioned the morality police, and I think that for uh, you know, American audiences that maybe don't follow Iran closely, they might not know what the morality police is. Could you help educate our, our audience on that front? So morality police is the last installation or last uh, institution that has been enforcing hijab. Enforcing hijab goes back to right after the 1979 revolution. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of the Iranian revolution, uh, gave a speech about mandatory hijab a few weeks after the fall of the monarchy. 
it took a few years for the regime to consolidate uh, this policy. And different institutions uh, under police uh, or committees initially were enforcing mandatory hijab. Morality police, as I said, is the last installation. And they just pick up women who uh, wear their hijabs loosely, even some men that are not uh, dressed as the dress code they consider proper. These people get arrested, get fined, um, they get harassed under um, arrest. And I mean, they supposedly give them classes or education, but we see that what kind of education they give to people. So these latest protests began in September. Yeah. With, with the death of, of this young woman, and they've continued ever since. Yes. Um, can you give us a sense of who is demonstrating, uh, not specifically by name, mm. but demographically, age, yeah. gender, occupation, who, and, and the numbers of people too? Yeah. So this, uh, this episode of protest has been very widespread. Uh, so as I mentioned, women have, have been at the forefront. I think many videos went viral. There were young women that were killed by the police later during the protest. Um, it started with Gina Amini, but there are many other names that are now being mentioned by uh, protesters. So young people, uh, people in their teens and 20s have been uh, present at these protests. We see these uh, name of these people among the people who have been killed and people who have been arrested and some of the two people that were executed, they were both in their 20s and there are more people that have received uh, execution sentences. These people, most of them are also in their 20s. Um, so this is also a generational issue. This is a generation that through internet has learned about the values of the world and they want to be part of the, just the, how people live in the globe. They have values that, um, don't come together with what Islamic Republic has been imposing on the population in terms of dress codes and other type of lifestyle. There is an important ethnic aspect to uh, these protests. I mentioned the Kurdish region and it was very significant that uh, Mahsa Amini was a Kurdish woman. Um, so Kurds have felt uh, for decades now that they are marginalized from the political process in Iran. They feel that they are discriminated against economically. Uh, and they have protested these issues uh, before. This time, uh, they're not specifically speaking about these issues, uh, but um, they have been, uh, the Kurdistan region in Iran has been a bastion of uh, protests. Other ethnicity that has considerably participated are Baluch. These Baluch are in the southeast of Iran. So what's interesting is that both the Kurds that I mentioned, most of them, and the Baluch, these are also, uh, they are ethnic minorities, but they're also religious minorities. These are Sunnis. So uh, in the Muslim population in the world, Sunnis are majority and Shias are minority. In Iran is the opposite. Uh, we have a majority Shia country and the government's uh, official ideology is also Shi's. Um, students have been participating and again this is remarkable because uh, this comes after years of repression, surveillance and restrictions on student activities and associations. We've seen protests in uh, dozens of uh, universities. Many students have been arrested again, have been barred from and entering uh, universities and have, have been arrested. Uh, 
uh, have been harassed by the security forces. Another remarkable matter is that we have seen uh, occupations also participated in these waves of protest. Over the last uh, several years, we have had protests by workers, industrial workers, um, nurses, teachers. But uh, in, on those, in those protests, they were not uh, asking for political goals. They were basically asking for uh, higher wages, uh, layoffs, protesting against layoffs, and so on. This is the first time an anti-regime wave of protest is coinciding by teachers also going on a strike, um, workers also going on a strike. Even more privileged occupations uh, had protests. There was a couple of protests by lawyers, uh, protests by doctors. And um, yeah, so these are all different groups that have participated. It does not mean that the whole occupation has participated. I mean like part of teachers, part of doctors have participated. Uh, from videos that uh, protesters uh, record of this protest, um, I can estimate that uh, on, a, on a single day we see tens of thousands of people coming out to wow. the streets. And this has continued uh, for about three months or longer. Um, so I think that this movement is still has potential to expand much larger. Iran is a country of 90 million people. The protests are risky. People have been losing their lives uh, going out. But for what protesters are asking, they need to expand the rank of people who come out in the streets. We know that people that are satisfied are much more than tens of thousands. We know this from a very low turnout in the last presidential election in Iran, which was the lowest uh, turnout for any presidential election. And we also know from a lot of people who uh, participate online and protest online. But for this movement to actually achieve regime change or any uh, like concrete change in the political process, they need to scale up from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands and millions of people. So we have a revolutionary movement, but we don't have a revolutionary situation yet. And the main thing that needs to happen is a scale shift in terms of the number of participants. Do you have a sense of, so, you know, there are, there are protest movements and protests all over the world on a fairly regular basis. In the United States, we've had some important social movements and social protests even in the last couple of years. But what's different in my mind anyways about Iran is the very real risk that these women took in removing the hijab, the, the very real risk that protesters take when they go to the street. We've seen people killed by security forces. We've seen public executions now, specifically, specifically because people were protesting. Where does the moral and physical courage come from in the people of Iran to confront this tyranny? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so in addition to what you mentioned, we had two uh, other episodes, at least two other episodes of nationwide anti-regime protests. The first happened in December of 2017, January of 2018, lasted for only 10 days. The second one was in November of 2019 that lasted for one week. In 2019, based on uh, human rights organizations, at least 300 people were killed in one week 
we have another number from Reuters that says uh, 1,500 people were wow. killed in. So just the fact that people still come out, and it's, it's a known fact that you are putting your life in risk, is remarkable. Where is the courage, courage coming from? I think it's coming from a sense of moral outreach and also a sense of uh, urgency. The sense that we don't want to live under these conditions anymore. In the discourse that I see from protesters, it's interesting to see references to slavery, that we are not slaves anymore. We don't want to put up with subjugation uh, under the tyrannical rule of the Islamic Republic anymore. And in social movement studies, we call this cognitive liberation, when a group of people consider a situation unjust and subject to change. So people think that these people who come out I mean, they come out of a sense of urgency, but I think they also think that it is possible to change this situation if more and more people uh, join the rank of protesters. So, Ali, is that a realistic possibility that more and more people will be coming out and it will reach what you called a revolutionary situation and the Islamic Republic will be overthrown. What's your sense of that? Again, you can't predict the future, but you certainly know the country and the movement very well. What's your, what's your, what's your best guess? It depends on the actions, I think, that the movements and protesters take and the government takes. This is like a, I mean, there are two major players that they're also, the government is more unified, protesters are more fragmented, and then there are third parties. So what needs to happen is the third parties to join, to join protesters. Um, what I think really can make a change is organizing. So it's not just about coming to the streets and protest. This is a, this is a long game. This is a marathon. This is not mm. a sprint. So the movement needs strategizing and pl planning, and that itself needs uh, leadership that is embedded in organizations. These are matters I discuss in the book. And to organize people, the movement need a discourse, a message that would be inclusive and convince people to join the movement. As we said, this is very risky. This is very costly. And my sense is that there are a lot of people that are dissatisfied with the situation. So it really is important for the protesters that can show a path forward. So a big part of discourse right now is about the atrocities of Islamic Republic, the grievances that protesters have, and how corrupt and awful the regime is. And this can be and should be part of the discourse that makes organizing possible. But the other part is to show a path forward, to ensure people that this is not only about destruction. What is it that we want to build instead? So the slogan, women, life, freedom, is significant because it's, it's positive. It's not just negation of what the Islamic Republic is. So the more protesters can elaborate on this slogan and talk about the future of Iran, a, a democratic Iran that women's rights is uh, observed and the different ethnicities don't feel marginalized and discriminated against. I think that can convince more people to join because this is a social movement. You need to convince people. What happens is that the repression is making protesters angry. And when you are angry and you have so much hatred, 
it becomes challenging for you to be able to speak with the third parties with the calm that you need to invite them to join the protesters. So I, the outcome is not certain. It is possible. This is, I think, what it takes for the movement to do. And big part of it is also what the, what the regime does. I mean, they can do stupid things that just change the uh, situation. So it's like a game we are watching. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. It's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we know how lucky we are to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend, G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. And our guest this week is Ali Khadivar. Born, raised, and educated in the Islamic Republic of Iran, he is now a professor of sociology and international studies at Boston College. He's also the author of a new book, Popular Politics in the Path to Durable Democracy. So we're just about to get into your book, but one last question on, on, on this issue here. Is democracy possible in Iran, given the history of the last four plus decades? I think democracy is possible now. Um, uh, in, the, in this movement, there is certainly a progressive side, there's a democratic side, there is conversations about democracy, rights, and so on. But there is also an intolerant side to the movement, which comes from that hatred, which comes from that anger. Um, but when we compare, when I compare, when I see that angry, like hateful side, I, I become concerned about the prospect for democracy. But when I compare it with 1979, I see the democratic side has become much stronger. And it has grown much larger. There are already calls for uh, restraint on the side of protesters, thinking about the future, that even though they're executing uh, protesters, this is not what we want to do to them if the regime change happens one day. So those parts give me hope was the other part uh, gives me concern. So I think it is possible and I mean that's what I have been trying to do and many other people have been trying to do. So I think the future is in the making. It's, it's a great segue to the book actually because uh, the, the book essentially argues that it's the practice that you have in those years of opposition that essentially either builds or does not build the civil society that's necessary to then sustain democracy. Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, one, so one idea you hear from part of the protesters now is that let's just focus on toppling regime the day after we can figure everything else out. So let's put that, all that's the... That's a revolutionary sentiment, Yes, right? that's yeah. a revolutionary yeah. sentiment. But yes, that is not, uh, that's the opposite of what I argue in the book and that's the opposite of what I observe in other movements when I look at solidarity movement in Poland or the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. Uh, it took years of protest mobilization uh, for the regime change to happen in those two uh, countries. And at the side of the coming out to the streets and striking and protesting was organization building, 
organizations that uh, were organized around the principles and values of democracy. So these movements were uh, practicing participatory democracy, internal democracy, solidarity in Poland and United Democratic Front in uh, South Africa. So it's through this process that uh, people learn skills, how to cooperate with each other, the values of uh, toleration, and to uh, resolve conflict based on the rules they agree upon. Because that's what democracy is. Democracy doesn't tell us uh, what policies to agree. But democracy tells us how to regulate our disagreements about policy making with some guarantees about the rights that should not be violated, uh, institutions that facilitate participations of marginalized uh, populations. And yet, so democracy is a formal organization at a macro level. But building that macro organization starts from building these smaller organizations that then scale up. I spoke about how population of protesters need to scale up. This, I think, happens with the scaling of the organizations that connect people together. So not all of the struggle is in the street. Even I think the more important part of the struggle happens, like organizing doesn't happen in the street. It happens on a phone call, two people talking to each other, gathering some people in your house and uh, talking to them, and then formalizing these relationships, building them up from local level to regional level to national level. Those movements have a much better chance of building durable democracy. Now with internet, it's possible, we saw this in Egypt, for example. Right. It, is, it is possible with internet to bring together like hundreds of thousands of people, even millions of people to the streets at once. But then uh, sustaining what you achieve with that short mobilization, that still needs that organization. So internet has allowed activists to skip the organizing steps. Before to organize a demonstrations, a lot more planning had to go uh, into place. That planning was important for that demonstration, but that planning and organizing then mattered long-term for, uh, for the movements. Now when internet enables protesters to mobilize rapidly, they don't have the tools they need to, for long-term long long planning, uh, and negotiations, organizing, and strategy. That seems really substantial, significant. I, I, I can remember, I want to say it was at, uh, in, in, in the Obama administration, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was still Secretary of State. There were protests in Iran at that point. And I can remember her publicly appealing to Twitter to not service their servers that weekend because they were being used by uh, organizers in Tehran to get people into the streets. Um, it, but what you're saying is that th that's almost short-circuiting the long-term development of a durable yeah. democracy in wherever those protest places are. Is that right? Yes, uh, but I don't say the, let the Twitter just get yeah. cut out. <laughs> the protesters do need the, the technology. It's about how they use it. Uh, do protesters only use internet for mobilizing? It can be also used for organizing. We just don't see the organizing messages because that's not, uh, you just don't tweet don't do and organize. Yeah. You don't do that in public. Yeah. That goes through communication, like one-on-one, -on -one, small groups from there, it can go up 
online meetings and so on. And I know that is happening in Iran right now. A uh, lot of groups have come together, like groups from uh, high school friends, college friends, from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. So people are using now internet for uh, organizing. That, I think, can uh, make a difference. So it's not just, it's about how we use the technology. It's not just about the technology. I think what sets your book apart and gives it its power is the combination of personal experience and the scholarship, the data analysis, which is really impeccable and extraordinary. Talk briefly about why you took that approach in, in writing your book, the personal experience and the scholarship and the, the data analysis. So the question of the book, how to build democracy, how to transition to democracy, that is rooted in my personal experience of being an Iranian, being exposed to life under autocracy for not having uh, democratic freedoms. I mean, I have observed people getting persecuted for their speeches, interviews. I mean, my, my own father was prisoned for his speeches and interviews. Uh, I had friends whose, uh, whose parents served in prison for eight years, one year, five years. I have friends who got arrested and got tortured. I have friends right now in prison in Iran. Um, so that's why I decided to study politics, to study sociology. And the more I studied, I realized that this is about a bottom-up change. Um, initially, I was paying attention to what the political elite could do. But then I realized it's only under pressure from uh, civil society that political elites would make decisions that would be favorable uh, to democracy. So that's what motivated my uh, scholarship. Um, the book, the, Iran is not in the, it's in the preface where I s say why I wrote it, but it's not any one of the case studies. I mean, then later I came to the States, I studied, uh, I, I did my PhD in sociology, and I had those um, goals and questions that I had from Iran. Uh, but I also believe in uh, what uh, social scientific methodology can teach us. That's why I chose to come to study social sciences, because I think we can learn from different experiences of successful democratization and failed democratization. We can also learn from uh, history of, of Iran and from uh, history of other countries. There are regularities in uh, how people protest uh, when protesters achieve their goals, how democracy emerge, how democracy endure. And I took a mixed method approach that has a statistical part where I wanted to look at the general regularities and then, then I focus on five case studies. I use comparative historical method to look at the processes. And I hope the argument I make in the book uh, will be read uh, by activists, protesters, people in authoritarian countries that want democracy, that strive for democracy, including in Iran. Yeah, I think anybody who cares about democracy in general ought to read this book. We're out of time. Ali Khadavar, thank you so much for being with us. The book is Popular Politics and the Path to a Durable Democracy. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, find us on Facebook or visit PellCenter.org. We can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>